Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good. Uh, We're reading today from Acts chapter 6 as we move along in our series through the book of Acts. And let's hop right into it. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So, the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Perconus, Nicanor, Timon, Paramenes, and Nicholas from Antioch. You just have to pretend that you know how to pronounce those when you go through them. Uh, a convert to Judaism, and they presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, I'll try that again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. So, you know, as we look at this story, we've kind of gone through a lot of wildness in the book of Acts. And um, at first glance, this story appears almost as if it were some kind of sidebar to the real and exciting action that we find in the book of Acts. And I suppose that there is a way of reading this, uh, a quite common way of reading this, in fact, in which we could highlight what we often consider to be the more mundane aspects of ministry. We could highlight, for example, how those who were chosen to wait on tables were to be people who were full and known to be full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And this is an important thing to highlight, in fact, because regardless of how you serve in this church, whether you are involved in kids' ministry or youth ministry or with our young adults or perhaps you're a greeter or maybe uh, you visit some of the seniors who are shut in, whatever your ministry happens to be within the church, we cannot simply do these things uh, on our own strength. No matter how simple they may seem, Uh, and no matter how well-crafted our systems or our ministry strategies are. And and part of the reason for this is that we need need to rely on the Spirit for all of the things that we do is because nothing is ever actually as it seems between us, is it? We can say hi to somebody, how's it going? I'm doing great, and their life is falling apart. Um, But as we begin to minister and welcome the Holy Spirit into all these different aspects of ministry— the Holy Spirit opens up space between us for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And the, and the Spirit opens up space between you and between other people to whom you're ministering or between you and your neighbors, opens up the space between you for the kingdom of God to come in. And in fact, we should anticipate this in our lives as people of the Spirit. So there's a way of kind of um, emphasizing some of that. There's another way in which we could emphasize and highlight the priority of prayer that's given in this passage, which is something that we need to be reminded of again and again and again as a church. We shouldn't do anything that is not rooted in prayer. And we see in our text that after um, the 12 
appoint seven people, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, to serve the widows in their community, they, they say this, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And it's interesting that, you know, the ministry of the Word gets a lot of attention, but prayer here is deeply important. Uh, N.T. Wright says this, the fact that they mentioned prayer in the same breath in verse 4 is highly significant. That implies not only, uh, not that those who do the distribution can do without prayer, but that the apostles must give themselves to far, far more prayer. Here, along with the challenge to a ministry of teaching and preaching, is a quiet but explosive hint to all leaders in today's and tomorrow's church. So in our text, we find the importance of prayer, the importance of waiting, both waiting on God, waiting on tables, in the Spirit of God, the fullness of the Spirit, the fullness of wisdom, and all of these things are deeply important. And there are things that, these are things that we learn about in a, in a variety of ways as we read this passage together. But while all of these things are true, uh, it would be wrong for us to read this text as merely some kind of sidebar to the real action, some kind of almost object lesson that's teaching us to pay attention to the small things in church. Actually, I'm becoming more convinced, and the more I studied this text, the more I became convinced that this is one of the most important passages in the book of Acts, and also one of the most frightening passages in the book of Acts, in fact. Because in this passage, we realize that what the Spirit was doing in the book of Acts, almost all of that fell apart, almost all of it. And so people, most certainly, who were full of the Spirit and full of wisdom were needed in this exact moment because in this moment, it was a moment of nearly unfathomable crisis. So one of the first things to notice about our text is it not all of the widows that are mentioned were overlooked. Rather, only some of the widows were overlooked. So the chapter opens with these words. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So what we see here is that there's a division between two groups of Jews. So first of all, there were the Hellenistic Jews. Who were the Hellenistic Jews? Well, essentially, the Hellenistic Jews came from outside of Palestine, and they were a group of Jews who spoke Greek and in some ways at least lived within a Greek cultural framework. Uh, the story as to how they kind of became Greek is hundreds of years old, began with the process of Hellenization when the Greeks were in power and, and wanted uh, at first to kind of convince people to accept their Greek ways. And then eventually when the Romans were threatening power, then they more, were more forceful in uh, making people accept their Greek ways. But by the time we get to our text, this history is now hundreds of years old. And so the people that we find in our text, the Hellenistic Jews that we find in our text, they would have just grown up um, speaking Greek. They would have grown up within a Greek culture. But the second group of people are the Hebraic Jews. And the Hebraic Jews are people who lived in Palestine and spoke Aramaic. And so we have the same family. They're both Jews. But within this same family, we find a difference of culture and a difference of language. So N.T. Wright again puts this difference succinctly. He says, so those uh, who were native-born Palestinian Jews, i.e. from Galilee or Judea, 
and these are the Hebraic Jews that are spoken of in the text, who spoke Aramaic as their mother tongue might well feel that they had more in common with one another, especially in a world where many women would only speak one language than they did with the Greek-speaking folk who had come from the wider world where Greek was at least everyone's second language and often their first. And so what we find in our text today is, in fact, very fascinating. Uh, on the one hand, one of the first things we notice, and it's the very first thing that's said in the text, is that the number of disciples were increasing in this time. So if we were to look at this community of people and judge them solely on numerical growth, as we are often tempted to do, we would say this community is doing really well. They're adding disciples all the time. All, everything's going good. But not everything was going good in this community. The Hellenistic widows were not being taken care of, while the Hebraic widows were being taken care of. Now, it's important for us, I think, when reading this passage to look back to the second chapter of Acts. And the last time I spoke, I spoke at the, about the beginning part of the second chapter of Acts, where we saw the incredible language that the Spirit, uh, a miracle that the Spirit did between languages. Acts 2, we read this. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Okay, so now we have Jews from all over the place. And when they heard the sound, the sound of the wind, but also the sound of people speaking in tongues, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And this is a great miracle that took place at the beginning of Acts 2. And the great miracle involved language. And as, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, was breaking the barriers between languages and between cultures. God was not breaking language and breaking culture. God was breaking the barrier between language and culture. The Spirit in Acts 2, was enabling those who were speaking to speak languages that they didn't even understand, but that the people who were hearing would understand. It was their own mother tongue, and they're hearing the wonders of God proclaimed in their own language, which means that, it, that the Spirit was giving agency to the hearers, to the cultural outsiders. So this was a, a hugely significant moment for the church. It still is, and it's a moment that we have to go back to again and again because it teaches us how we are to work out our salvation, how we are to work out being people of the Spirit in the world. But by the time we get to the sixth chapter of Acts, we are seeing the incredible work of the Spirit being undone. Instead of language and a diversity of language being used as a unifying factor, by the time we get to Acts 6, suddenly we see language and cultural division being used as instruments of oppression against the most vulnerable. The cultural outsiders, the Hellenists, 
were being neglected while the cultural insiders, the Hebraics, were not being neglected. They were, they were receiving everything that they needed. Now, the more that I've studied uh, Pentecostalism, and I mean this both in terms of studying the scriptures on Pentecostalism, but also the Pentecostal movement. Maybe you don't know this church. We are a part of, of the Pentecostal movement. We are a Pentecostal church. The more that I've studied both the scriptures, but also our history, the more I become convinced that when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit comes as fire and begins to disrupt these boundaries that we put between us, boundaries that may be normal to society, but the Spirit begins to work against these things. But I've also become very convinced that these amazing things, what's initially astounding and, and phenomenal to us, we can't hold on to it for long. And so it doesn't take us very long to then begin to quench the Spirit's fire and quench what the Spirit is doing. Estrella Alexander in her book, Black Fire, she talks about the part of the birth, at, at least we could go back a little bit further and talk about what was happening in India in the late 1800s. But she talks about the early 1900s here uh, and you need to think of places like Los Angeles, California. In the early 1900s, think about what the uh, racial segregation was like at a time like this. And so she says, here's what happened early on in our, in our movement. She said, formed during the height of a period when racial separation tainted every sphere of American society. Earliest Pentecostals of all races vigorously and conspicuously fought segregationist urges, initially developing a pattern of inclusiveness and interracial leadership that had been unprecedented in American religious history. This is like early, early 1900s. Simply amazing, stunning, but the story continues. Yet... These intense early impulses, which went far beyond tolerance to include actual embrace of persons of diverse ethnic backgrounds, soon capitulated to surrounding racial realities. After the initial period, race became an issue and separation was soon to be the norm. And this is exactly the kind of thing that we see at play today in Acts chapter 6. The unprecedented thing that the Spirit did in Acts chapter 2 was now being worked against just a few chapters later. And so we see that based in language at the beginning of Acts 2. But things go from bad to worse when we consider the end of Acts 2. If you were here, I spoke on the beginning with the language and all these things. And then David the next week spoke on the, the communal implications with the Spirit. In Acts 2.41, we read this. Those who accepted his message. Here it's talking about Peter as he's standing up and explaining what happened at Pentecost. Those who accepted Peter's message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So if you look at Acts 6, I mean, it actually starts in quite a similar way in those days when the number of disciples was increasing. So you see an increase in Acts 2, you see an increase in Acts 6, but what follows from Acts 2 to Acts 6 couldn't be more different. In Acts 2, and David preached on this uh, just a number of weeks ago, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. 
And now look at this. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. When we get to Acts 6, we see these same people who just a few chapters earlier joyfully, apparently, held everything in common. This is following the miracle of language. Suddenly, there is this unity brought, and the people held all things in common. Now, they are withholding from each other based on language and based on culture. And this is no small deal. Miroslav Volf says this, he says, the speakers of native languages, talking about Acts 2 there, he said, here they understood that they understood at Pentecost were profoundly at odds with each other. And the widows bore the economic brunt of the conflict. Needs were not met. Languages were not understood. Pentecost was undone. Well, almost. And the almost undoing of Pentecost that we find in chapter 6, I believe it shows us what we need to do when we begin to work against the Spirit. First, we read this. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together. And this is beautiful. Rather than just kind of like trying to deal with it on the side, they said, you know what? This This is a matter for the whole church. So they, they gathered the whole community together. But then how they solved this problem is, is, is just stunning to me. This is this. Um, they proposed uh, that, that they would choose seven people, seven people filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with wisdom, and that they would then uh, take care of all of the widows. So here's, here's what it says. This, it's pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Paramenes, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented them to the apostles who prayed for them and laid their hands on them. Now what's important about this list, which uh, most of us would overlook, is that it appears that every one of the names, every one of the people that they chose were Greek. These are all Greek names. And so what they did is the problem arose and the Greek men brought a problem and said, hey, like you're not taking care of our widows, but you're taking care of the widows who speak Aramaic. Like what's going on here? So they called the whole church and they said, okay, we'll figure something out. You know what? We're going to choose seven people full of faith and the spirit full of wisdom And so they choose these men, all Greek. Now, at first, this could actually seem problematic. It could seem problematic because there could be, we could read this in a way that would say, look, you bunch of complainers, fine. You want to complain, you take care of things. You want to bring the problem, you deal with the problem. But I don't think that's what's going on here. Um, We note here that the Hellenists who brought the complaint forward, um, they were not now simply tasked with taking care of their own widows. They're actually tasked 
to take care of all of the widows. And in fact, they were, they were spiritually commissioned to do so. They said, we're going to lay our hands on you and commission you for this work. A deeply symbolic thing here. And as a result, here's what, here's what Volf says. He says, representatives of the injured party have been appointed to take care of all the widows, their own as well as those of the injuring party. Justice was to be pursued by inverting perspectives and seeing the problem through the eyes of the wronged. They said, you know what we need to do? We have overlooked things. We have had a problem here. We need to invite the wronged and put them in charge so that we can see things through their eyes. And this reminds me, I think this is somewhat reflective of of Acts 3, which Tyson spoke of a few weeks ago. Because in Acts 3, we find the disciples, they go to the gate called Beautiful, and it says that there was a man who was begging there. And if you read the text carefully, it says that the man was always there, and it says that the disciples were there at prayer time, which is, they would do that every day. In other words, they passed this man every single day. But they never really saw him until this day in Acts chapter 3. And in Acts chapter 3, they see him for the first time. They actually see him for the first time. He is no longer simply a beggar in their peripheral, but he is a person who is in front of their faces, a person who has needs, and a person who, in just a few moments from then, would be invited into a community in which people shared everything in common and had no need. And so he was seen, this beggar, and he was welcomed and he was healed. But you know what? The disciples, they were healed first. They once were blind, but now they could see this man who had only been in the peripheral. But now the spirit was at work opening their eyes to see the people that they and apparently everyone else overlooked. And in our text, we see a sight problem too, and that's exactly the word that is used in our text is overlooked. The majority were blind, maybe willfully so, to the widows who were at the fringe. And this is no small deal when you, when you think about these widows, because these widows would have been recent converts and in history, it would have been their, you know, and in that time, it would have been their immediate family members who took care of them. But N.T. Wright says this, but those family ties appear to have been cut when people joined the new movement. So they joined this movement at great cost to themselves. Their family ties are cut, and now they find themselves in a community that is overlooking them because they speak a different language because they're from a different culture. But here, what we see toward the end of the text is a beautiful reversal where the community commissioned these Greek men to be certain that the whole community could see rightly in order that injustice could be addressed, corrected, and avoided in the future. And to do this, they said it was those who were wronged that needed to be put in charge. Pentecost in our text was almost undone. The thing that the Spirit was doing in Acts 2 was almost undone. But by commissioning the injured party to lead, the work of the Spirit continued. 
So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Tyson, I'll get you to come up here. We'll conclude the message in a minute. But at this point, we want, we want to pause and, and just process together for a moment and see if anybody has maybe some thoughts or questions or disagreements for Tyson. Um, you can, no, for either of us. Um, yeah, we have, we have some mics. And yeah, there's some volunteers in the room. And yeah, if there's, I think we already got one up all the way up at the up front. front. And while they're walking to that, I, I love that Wolf comment that you just kind mm. of briefly talked about. I've seen the eyes through the wrong. I think that's a really profound, it's up here. Um, really profound statement for us to be thinking through. So I love that comment, Phil. Mm. Motivated by your message on Acts 3, man. Good. Yes. Thanks, thanks Phil. I really yeah. like the life of the challenge. Question I have is what creates sustained spirit enabled, spirit enabled power? What enables a sustained approach to transformation? How do we deeply experience lasting, genuine transformation that goes from Acts 2 to Acts 6 and stays to Acts 57 and 5,000? Mm. How do we, so Mike was off slightly at the beginning. I just want, how do we experience the lasting change of the spirit, essentially? Yes, yeah, sustainable. Sustainable, yeah, good. Uh, that's a fantastic question, and I think, it's, I think it's exactly the question that we have to wrestle with right now. Um, and I'll talk about the necessity for that question in the conclusion, but I will say that I think uh, a large part of this is that we have to be a praying community. Um, it is so easy for us to let systems take over. I'm not opposed to systems, but a system community does not necessarily equal a spirit community. And as people led by the spirit, um, the spirit will often lead us into things that maybe do not make sense to us initially. <clears throat> and then we need to learn how to discern together. And this is what I like about the entire community being brought here. Um, they were all involved in what was happening. I think discernment is never easy, but it is easier to discern for myself than it is for us all to discern what's happening in our church and together. Uh, but I also think that the, a huge key to this happens at the end where they bring the wronged forward. Um, you know, Volf talks about this kind of like ecstatic justice, that there was all this wild stuff happening, blowing everybody's mind in Acts chapter two. He said, and in a sense, that justice had to, be, had to come down and be worked out amongst the people eventually. But to do that, um, they, they invited the wronged to lead. They didn't just hold a committee meeting and say, how are we gonna address this with a public statement? Um, they said, how do we take the wronged and, and empower them to lead us so that we can see through their eyes and not ours because we've got it wrong? And so I think there's always going to be that movement of we got it wrong. I don't think we would be under an illusion to, to say <laughs> that somehow we're gonna find the, find the thing we have to move and be flex. I think this is part of it. We have to be flexible. People who bend with the wind of the spirit, you know? Not so rigid that when the spirit comes, uh, we, we break under the pressure, but we have such a deep root system through prayer, through discernment, through these things. 
um, that we learn how to bend together with the weight of the Spirit. But I think it, at the end of the day, I think it has to be worked out in the difficulties, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, do you have thoughts on this, Tyson? No, I mean, I would agree with everything you've said there, too. And I would, I would even back it up just a little bit to a statement that we've made at I think various points along this way is, and you know, we've all read Andrew Root's book and we like to refer to it, but he talks about this imminent frame of this belief that does God even really work within our society right, today? Right. And so I think the, you know, the question that we have to continue to come back to as a starting point to go with everything you've just said is, do we actually believe the spirit is working today? Are we open to God speaking to yes. us and being available to say he actually has something to say and we need to be able to listen yeah. and open to listen in that. And that comes into the discernment that. piece that Kristen talked about last week of the mystery and how we discern together as a community. So Yeah, I love that posture of openness to the move of the spirit now. Yeah, who else? Who else has a question over here? Thanks, I really appreciated your message. Um, that's a bunch of questions and observation. It's, you know, in the slide that's up there, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Yeah. It's interesting we could treat that as kind of just a throwaway line, <laughs> but I see it as a very significant capstone to this, what you've been talking yeah. about. Because if you think of, first of all, this first time that priests have actually joined mm. the new community. And then if you think of the Gospel of Luke, Luke's first volume, Priests are oftentimes functioning as the gatekeepers mm. of the community. So when Jesus cleanses someone, go show yourself to the priest, because that's how they're going to gain readmission into the community. So I find it very significant that here when, and as you mentioned on the day of Pentecost, you got this fire of the spirit that's kind of burning down those barriers that would separate yes. people. I find it very significant that in this kind of major hurdle that the church now has to cross, mm. You've got this mending of that in the ways that you outlined, but it's also interesting in this sense, I think what Luke is saying is that these, these people who formerly are kind of the gatekeepers are kind of getting this, mm. and they're kind mm. of now joining this community. So kind of, so I see that line is not so much a throw, and I know you didn't say anything, but I know oftentimes we'd read that and see that as just part of these summary statements yeah, of Luke yeah. that are just kind of throwaway, but I think he's very intentional in saying something very important here is happening. In this new covenant community, there are no gatekeepers. Mm. Again, we authorize the wronged to solve these problems mm. rather than the officials always serving in that role. Mm. But I just thought, but I thought that's a great message. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you for that comment. And um, you know, I, I love how you're pointing out that this is the end piece here. Because the true role of the priest. Uh, was to be the go-between, between God and people, between people and God. And I think that that's actually what's happening in this, this text, right, where uh, the people are becoming blocked by God. And here, there's this new movement of the Spirit, and they say, ah, and the priests are joining, in other words, and the movement of how things are supposed to be between God and people is happening again. Well, thank you for pointing that out. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Do we have another uh, one or two questions, perhaps? Over it's here. Like we got one in the middle. So, in this context, we're looking at two groups of people, both of whom are following kind of the same faith, the same new movement, but from different cultures. How do we kind of move into 
like what we're experiencing now with our indigenous communities where the wronged party isn't necessarily following the same faith. How do we put them in leadership um, and like see through their eyes and their context of how they've been wronged um, while still like not continuing to traumatize them with how they were wronged in the past, mm. but creating reconciliation for them as Christians still. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, we have some incredible Christian leaders um, who are indigenous, even within our church. I think of Holly. And, you know, one of the things I remember Holly saying is, hey, if you want to witness, if we want to call it that, to the indigenous community, you don't have to convince them that there's a God. <laughs> they believe in creator, and there's, there's so much more um, in common here than, than not in common. Um, I think to really accurately answer that question, especially in keeping in line with what, we've, with what I've said today and what I'm seeing in this text, would be to find members of the indigenous community and have them walk us through that and what that actually means um, and empower them, not just on the side, but in front of the whole body. Empower them, lay our hands on them, commission them to teach us and to lead us. Um, I will say, uh, one of the dangers for us, I think, one of the things that we get nervous of is um, what we would call syncretism. So what happens when people of another faith um, maybe come to our faith, but they have their practices? And what we often do, and this is where putting people in charge from other uh, groups like the indigenous folks, we fail to see our own syncretism. <laughs> um, I... I mentioned this on one, of the, on one of the podcasts maybe three, four weeks ago, but I was leading worship in Thailand uh, for a group of missionaries there. One of the missionaries had, had said that, um, I can't remember what region he served in, they were just kind of on a retreat in Thailand. He said, you know, I, I remember a woman came and she stepped off the plane and she said, oh, it's so dark here. Um, and he said, you know, we hear that all the time. People say they can feel the darkness and all of that. He said she went back home, and uh, he said there was nothing unusual for us to hear something like that. But she went back home, and she said, oh, my goodness, um, it finally struck me that it's dark where I live, but it, sometimes you'll hear charismatics, Pentecostals talk about familiar spirits. She said, it, the spirit, though, the dark spirit was so familiar that I never felt it. And I think that this is where it's not simply trying to find a way to minister to other people, but actually by empowering them, they point out our own failures and our own faults and, and the darkness within our own community. And they're able, this is why we need people who are filled with the spirit and filled with wisdom to lead us and to guide us into these things. Because my goodness, we have these, we have these problems too. But I've seen recently, you know, one of the most beautiful things, um, I, I talked briefly in the last message about being in Brockett, Alberta, with the Pecani people. And I went to a Catholic church there, and one of the most beautiful things that they had, in the Catholic tradition, they have um, 
the Eucharist, the elements of the Eucharist are housed within a tabernacle at the front of the church, and they're always there, and there's normally a light that shines behind to represent that the, the presence of Jesus is with them. And when I went to this church on the reserve, uh, the tabernacle was actually a teepee at the front of the church, and I thought, this is just, yes, this is so brilliant. We need more of this, more of these things to see that the presence of Jesus is housed there. Uh, this is a really long answer to your question, but to, to, to find beautiful symbols and ways of acknowledging the presence of the Lord there, but then also inviting the people from those communities to open our eyes, because I think oftentimes we are more probably like the Hellenists than the Hebraic community, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I won't, I won't say much more because I think that's great in what you said. And it's the hard, But the hard wrestle through for us then as a community is to avoid the um, defensiveness in those moments as well. To yes. say, well, not all are like that. Or that's, that was a long time ago. Those types exactly. of things. The posture to say, no, actually, if we want to seek true justice and, and seek true reconciliation, to be open to say, actually, there's a tradition that we're a part of that may have deeply wounded someone and we need to be open to. Yeah. How do we then participate in, in God's work of wanting to put things right, regardless of our involvement in it? And this is, I, I so agree. And this is where, to me, this is the step that we rarely take, is to say, we will put you in charge so we can see through your eyes. And that's, I think, what's, what's needed. Okay, one more question, and then we'll conclude, if we have another. I won't answer that long, maybe. That'll help somebody to ask. <laughs> is there anybody... Well, I, I think I see Keegan or someone pointing back here. Is there a question? No. No. Okay. Well, why don't we, uh, we'll conclude the message, you know. Thanks, Tyson. Appreciate it. Um, I grew up in, within the Pentecostal movement. And this church is a part of that Pentecostal movement. And growing up, I have seen the power and the wonder of the move of the Holy Spirit. I, I've seen just incredible things. I could tell you stories about some of these things. One of my deep concerns is that I believe that Pentecostals are at a really crucial moment in our history. And it strikes me that Pentecostal people have forgotten or perhaps never fully realized who we actually are and what we are supposed to be about in the world. And precisely because of the disruptive movement of the spirit that we've talked about over these past number of weeks, um, we quickly move away from what the spirit is doing in our midst to move to something that seems more comfortable, something that we can grasp, and something, frankly, that we can control. Just so you know, you cannot control the wind and you cannot grasp the wind. <laughs> but we become un uncomfortable with these things. And I believe that there's a significant way that I've watched in my lifetime of Pentecostal people who have moved away from the experience of the Spirit to now we simply talk about the Spirit. Or maybe even talk about the, the experience of the Spirit. But we are nervous <laughs> to actually experience the things of the Spirit in our midst. And 
I think part of the reason for this is because, frankly, uh, and some of you might know what I'm talking about, things got weird. (laughs) As much as I've experienced the power and the wonder of the Spirit, I've also experienced things that were weird and even at times, frankly, frightening that were done in the name of the Spirit. And so I think that there's been a reaction um, where we've seen these things and we've said, okay, yeah, we don't want that. Uh, but as, as one of you said to me just a few weeks ago, I think in our reaction, we've, we've moved way too far the other way. But I don't think that our reaction to the weird things is our only reason that we are nervous to experience the Spirit. I think there is something else going on here. Uh, Twelve years ago, a philosopher, a Canadian philosopher, by the name of James K.A. Smith, he actually now resides in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, I have a double affinity for him being Canadian, having lived uh, in Grand Rapids as well. Um, He said this 12 years ago. He said, I would venture a hypothesis that is admittedly anecdotal. As Pentecostal denominations, such as the Assemblies of God in the United States. Now, I've ministered mainly for the past 20 years in Assemblies of God churches in the United States. But as Pentecostal denominations climb the ladder of social class, the practice of tongues speech in congregational worship context decreases. This, I would suggest, is precisely because such a strange practice does not conform to the rationality, the reality principle, of capitalist logic. And insofar as such upwardly mobile congregations are seeking to advance by capitalist logic, they eschew the language of resistance. Pentecostalism began at the margins. We were not a people of power according to the earth, earthly kind of measurement of power. We weren't, you know, didn't have political power. We were not wealthy people. We begin at the margins. But Smith says he believes that as uh, Pentecostals grow in political influence and and power, worldly power, which is opposed to spiritual power, to the spirit's power. He says that as it grows, he believes that we will speak in tongues and, and experience in our corporate settings kind of the more charismatic gifts. We will experience them less and less because we will feel that we are too sophisticated for that. We are beyond that, thank you very much. And instead, we will lean on worldly systems and practices that fit our cultural sensitivities and sensibilities. Not least capitalist logic. And I believe that he's right, and I have watched it. I have watched churches that waited for the Spirit to move in their midst, just basically shut it all out, and we're happy to talk about the Spirit, but we don't want to experience the Spirit. It's too risky. Now, at the same time, I've watched another trend take place, um, particularly in the U.S., but also in Canada, and, and growing in frequency in Canada, where I believe, similar to our text, that we have moved further and further away from the radical roots of the origins of our, of our movement. Pentecostal people at the inception of Pentecostalism, uh, when the Spirit came and did these incredible things for our first number of years, uh, we were actually pacifists. Some of you are 
a good time for some of you to gasp, probably. But uh, we, were, we were big proponents of nonviolence. But now I see Pentecostal uh, leaders, again, particularly in the U.S., who are big gun-toting people, Second Amendment, you know. And, and it, to me, I, I look at that and go, we, we've moved so far from what the Spirit did at our origins. But who needs a spirit when you have a gun? Um, anyway. Um, when we began, there was a man by the f- name of Frank Bartleman who famously said that at Pentecost, the color line was washed away by the blood. Not the color, mind you, but the color line, the line that divided us by language and divided us by culture. He said it was washed away by the blood of Jesus. But we have moved away from this too. Uh, Our family moved here just over four years ago. Prior to being here, I was in a church in, in the southern United States And I remembered that there was a Sunday where the pastor of the church wore a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, spoke on racial reconciliation, and seven white families stood up and walked out and never returned to the church. And this is a move away from who we were at our beginnings. Now, I could go on, but I want to say that I believe that these, these two things, the corporate experience of the Spirit and this moving away and shutting people out who are not at the center and not listening to people who are not at the center are actually deeply related because the more that we rely on systems of worldly power, on capitalistic systems, of all of these things for growth and for influence, the more the people that those systems oppress will not belong in our midst. And we will become much like the Hebraics who overlooked the Hellenistic widows. And so at this moment in history, I wonder, will what God has done for us be undone by us? Or can we too have our sight restored to the true message of Pentecost and can we come alive again? I wonder, can we listen to those who say they've been overlooked? And can we lay our hands on them and commission them to lead us and to show us what it truly means to be full of the spirit and wisdom once again? Or will we put out the spirit's fire? This is the question and the task that stands before us. May we follow where the spirit is leading in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. May God's grace and peace be with you.